the evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. A very good afternoon to you. It's Monday, the 18th of December, 2023. Today is really auspicious as it marks 100 years since radio was first introduced in South Africa to the first experimental broadcast at the, ra- at the railway headquarters in Johannesburg on the 18th of December, 1923. Radio has been one of the great loves of my life, starting with amazing memories made listening to Springbok Radio in the 70s and 80s and then migrating to Capital Radio 604 in the mid-80s when Springbok was discontinued. 5FM then followed by Radio of Choices in the, late, in the early 90s, followed by Highfelt and then Jacaranda. Much later, I migrated to Hot. And my current station of choice is Mix FM for, of course, easy listening. My own personal radio journey starts in the late 2000s as the security expert on Radio 2000 on Kenny Nemec's show 2010 and beyond about the upcoming FIFA 2010 World Cup. What was great about that show was the official FIFA 2010 radio show and it broadcast worldwide. And the, the intention of the show was to advise our, our potential international visitors to this incredible tournament that South Africa was actually a safe destination. Everybody had heard these horror stories, and we were very successful in bringing a lot of tourists to South Africa and changing a lot of people's perception about South Africa. From 2011 to 2012, I had a regular spot as crime commentator on radio today on a show called Changing Destiny. And I've been fortunate to have been asked to comment on topical stories on a multitude of different radio stations over the years. For the past 10 years, from April 2013 until today, I've had a permanent slot on High FM that looks at the problems of fraud, corruption and crime in South Africa and what can be done to solve this. We've been fortunate to interview generals that have headed up various divisions within the police, investigative journalists, people that want to solve crime, people that have been victims of crime, and all All in all, we believe that a difference has been made, even if it's one or two, where people took advice, listened to what was being said, and understood the dangers that are out there. This particular show on High FM won the best daytime show in South Africa in 2017. Today's my last day on High FM. It's been an incredible time, and I want to thank you all who've been a part of this absolutely fantastic journey. And I couldn't think of a better guest for today than David Allen. David, who will be joining us in a couple of minutes, is a top South African speaker, trainer, and author who's in high demand both at home and abroad. He's also a successful entrepreneur, a director of Camp Solomon, and has served as a police reservist for three decades. The reason I wanted to chat to David today is because of his spirit of community, his spirit of volunteerism, and then, of course, on the professional side, what he does, because I'm sure you're going to find that fascinating, but more coming up in the next couple of minutes. I'd like to remind you, of course, that the views expressed on the show are necessarily those of myself or Chai FM. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today I get to speak to David Allen, somebody I've got to know over the years via social media. He's a very interesting person, not just has he served his country as a volunteer um, reservist for all these years, 28 years in particular, but he also lectures internationally on decoding body language. I've seen him take trips all over the world, but more specifically to America, where he's presented to American law enforcement this very important, important skill that he refers to as decoding body language. 
David's Decoding Body Language sessions have been well received across South Africa, but what's so very important is that participants are taught to accurately read the emotional state of those they interact with, and of course to detect lies. We're going to chat about that a little bit later, but first, David, a very welcome to you. Good afternoon, Chad. Good afternoon to the listeners, and thank you so much for having me on your show. It's great to have you. I've, I've followed you with keen interest over the years. I've noticed how um, your your sessions um, have been received internationally. In fact, you you wrote quite recently, about a month ago, um, on return from the States, one of the, the write-ups of the delegates, how they enjoyed particularly your session in this training. And it's something that's of, of, of keen interest to both myself and the listeners. If you could summarize for us, what exactly would you say decoding body language is? Pretty much, yeah. It, it was very surprising and, and very humbling to get such wonderful feedback from some top law enforcement guys that we were actually doing training with. And one of the kind of compliments that, that they gave was the fact that the information I kind of sent across was was very practical, that they could use it straight away. It wasn't theoretical. And they could kind of apply the points immediately. And when you kind of notice the signals that people send out with their body language, um, that's a very useful social and business tool. Um, I mean, as leaders, we got to kind of make decisions based on the information that we're getting. And how do we know the information is accurate? How do we know that someone's giving us all the information before we make that kind of decision? Um, and also, when you can read body language, every moment that you spend with others can be more valuable. And if you're in business, it can be a lot more profitable. Um, yeah, and that's kind of where my body language kind of journey started way when I first joined uh, the police back in 1995. Um, we had a great trainers, uh, a retired colonel now, uh, Don Gold. And there was actually an American... Um, that was out doing, uh, he was on assignment, I think. It was just seconded to the police giving advice and on an advisory level called Rick Baratta. And I really loved their session on verbal judo, how to kind of command presence, that negotiation aspect. And that's where my passion and love for body language kind of started. Must be very difficult for parents or friends of your children and teachers of your children when they know you have the skill being on guard when they're talking to you and, and being so, um, you know, concerned about what they may be projecting. I, I love it because when I'm in any kind of social gathering, people will say, so what do you do for a living? And then I kind of say, no, well, I'm a body language trainer. And you straight away see people's hands move and they kind of don't know what to do and they cross and then they uncross their arms and hands go in the pockets and hands come out the pockets. And the moment I kind of mention I'm body language trainer, they become very aware of their own body language. It is something that I turn on and off. Um, it's one of those things, yes, as you can imagine, I go crazy kind of picking up on everything. But um, when we kind of turn it on, you can really pick up on quite a lot. And it's very interesting to see how people communicate um, and how much they communicate with their body language. They don't realize it, how much that they're giving away, uh, but there really is a lot there. What I find fascinating is that it was taught for 
um, the need to accurately read um, people's emotional states of mind, how they interact with others, and also, of course, to detect lies. But you talk here about it at a different level. You talk here about in a leadership capacity, what management can use to increase productivity, or perhaps during a negotiation with with another company that they perhaps would want to to join forces with. Yeah, I, I kind of my whole journey started off from a policing perspective, and at the same time that I. You know, joined as a police reservist. I mean, I was 19 years at the time, uh, and and I then um, started a company with my business partner doing outdoor adventure. We were doing leadership courses for school kids and taking school kids out. And what was very interesting straight away is that I kind of noticed how certain instructors got uh, a higher success rate at, for example, getting kids to do the the zip line or the ab selling than other instructors. And why did certain kids listen to that kid at that activity, but a completely different kid at a different activity? So I kind of, this kind of ignited a passion in me for understanding leadership and body language. And kind of when I analyzed what some of the instructors were doing, the way that they would stand and present, and some of these other leaders, you know, the student leaders were standing and presenting, I kind of realized, hey, hold on, this was some of the stuff that we were being trained on the policing side, that negotiation aspect, how do you stand, how do you present, and then kind of realize this, because in my mind, I'd always separated the two, this was policing and business was like two completely separate entities, um, but then it kind of came crashing together, you realized it's it's dealing with people, and you know, someone recently asked me, no, Dave, what's the best thing about leadership, and the answer was dealing with people. The the next question, what's the worst thing about leadership? <laughs> and the answer, <laughs> dealing, dealing with, with people. people. And you kind of realize, once you get understand how to deal with people more effectively and, and, and better, everything just improves from a business perspective, from a social perspective, and even from a policing perspective. Today we're chatting to David Allen. He's an expert in decoding body language. When we come back, I want to chat more about his career in the South African Police Service. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We're in conversation with David Allen today, and so far we've chatted about his background, decoding body language, what he's been doing. And he mentioned that he was 19 when he joined the South African Police Service. That's 28 years ago. He's based in the Tel Midlands in a, in a place called Nottingham Road. I'm sure you all know it from driving down, and it's a lovely, quaint environment. And as a result of that, he's become fondly known as the Sheriff of Nottingham. David, let's talk about this journey within the South African Police Service. And the reason why I want to talk about it, and I want to talk specifically about what's happening in the police, because that's a different conversation to have. I want to talk about your journey within the police and how you've seen changes over the years. I remember when you joined the reserves in the early 90s and mid-90s, there were upwards of 70, 80, 90,000 reservists. We're now looking at a dwindling number in just the few thousands. What made you start this journey? Most importantly, what made you stay the course and why are you still there? Uh, nice questions. And <laughs> I've, I pretty much started the, the journey. I mean, Nelson Mandela in coming in, into power in 1994, I famously kind of asked for volunteers to kind of rebuild the country and get the country kind of going. And I like the idea of volunteering and kind of doing my bit. And back then, a lot of people um, kind of took it upon themselves to better uh, the environment around them and their lives around them. I always had a passion for policing. 
So to me, it was quite easy to actually join. Back then, I'd, uh, because I was under 21, my parents actually needed to sign a consent form that I could join and then underwent that training. I was based in escort for about five, six years. And at that time, it was the heart of political violence. Um, 1995, 1996, uh, Wembezi uh, Township that was just outside of escort was, there was a lot of political violence going on there. And it's one of the areas that I was stationed with. Um, I also then did a stint with the Durban Flying Squad down in Durban. And I, I just had a passion for kind of, I was this new kid on the block that just wanted, there was a sponge. They kind of wanted to learn as much as I could whenever I could. And a lot of the older detectives kind of could, took me under their wing. And because I had a passion for it, they were quite happy to actually teach me and on, and, um, on, answer questions and every possible course that was offered to to me at the time I just grabbed it with both hands and yeah took it running kind of thing so I, I was lucky enough to do some world-class kind of courses and absolutely loved it um, as a result I ended up transferring down to Durban I worked at Greenwood Park Station for a while and then I transferred across to the Brea and then went up to Durban North Station where I was for 10 years before transferring up to Nottingham Road. Um, back then, yeah, about 20, uh, 2010, I think it was, we had around 50,000 reservists. And yeah, nationwide now we're down to 3,300, of which there's just 300 left in KZN. I have, Chad, I've often asked myself, you know, is it time to kind of hang it up? Is it time just to, you know, talking to close family and friends, especially wife? You know, now I've got a wife and uh, two kids. You know, people often say, hey, you know, Dave, are you not putting your life on the line here? You know, you've got a successful you know, talking career. You run camps well. Do you need to do this policing aspect? But to me, it's a passion. When we joined up, um, it wasn't for money. It was purely to kind of help help our community and get out there. And uh, and I loved every minute of it. Lately, it is difficult. Um, when I first joined, I'd walk into any shop in police uniform, and I love the fact that the members of the public would straight away look at you with respect. You know, you'd enter the room, and there was that level of respect straight away. Unfortunately, now, when I put on a uniform and I walk into a shop, you kind of get that um, almost contempt look by very a, a lot of members of the public. They kind of, the moment you walk into a shop, they kind of look at you thinking, ah, are you just here for a two-liter Coke or a KFC? And there's always the kind of corruption jokes that come through. And, um, yeah, you're not looked on in such a favorable light. And it does weigh away on you. It does a lot because you kind of start to get demoralized within your own side as to, hey, are we actually as playing an effective um, role in our country and are we actually appreciated? David, um, but, yeah. your life was literally put on the line once. Um, I read about the time that um, you you had an altercation with a suspect. Um, you didn't know that um, how the suspect was going to react. And it potentially put your life in danger. You were very, very close to death. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? My next question is, is which time? It was it was when you were almost, or you were stabbed, but you were almost fatally stabbed. Oh, uh, yes. Um, uh, we were 
I'd actually arrest a suspect for um, attempted rape. Um, so one of the members of the public had actually called it in, arrived at the scene, and there was uh, and it was an attempted rape rape suspect, and he had now stabbed me, or during the course of that arrest, still managed to overpower him, getting to handcuffs. Um, but then by this time, the community started coming out, and at the as we've now kind of got him in handcuffs, placing him under arrest i am slightly wounded but now i've actually got to defend this guy's life because now he's in my care and because now the community obviously wanted um, their own uh, own form of justice and now they kind of wanted to stone me along with the suspect because i wouldn't hand the suspect over and very often i kind of i would tell that story to um civilians and they're like well why don't you just hand the the suspect over the guy tried to kill me and now you are defending him but you tell that story to kind of policemen and they just nod their heads kind of knowing knowing straight away that this is the way of it this is just the job it's part of the job and this is just what has to be done and it's you know it's one of the reasons why i have kind of stayed i have recently given thought to you know do i stay in do i leave you know the police as such but when you when i book on duty and you see a lot of the other permanent force members they are so dedicated. Yes, we've got nonsense. Yes, we've got a couple of guys that uh, get up to mischief within the police, and their their badges don't shine so bright. But there are guys out there who every day and day out are out on the front lines, kind of holding back that evil. And I just, I'm very lucky in the sense that I have a bad day like that, and I can just, that's it, I'm booking off duty, and I don't have to come back for another month. But these men and women, they have a bad day and they've got to report back for a 12-hour shift <laughs> the very next day. And they've got to carry on slogging it out um, just to try and hold that, what we call the thin blue line. And very often it's one of the main reasons I haven't actually let go of uh, policing and kind of stayed in is that you actually don't want to disappoint our brothers and sisters in blue. You kind of want to, they there for us so often, and you kind of want to be there for them. Even if it's just uh, pitching up at the station and a hand on the shoulder and just kind of that appreciation, you just see it really does go a long way. David, what, what, what strikes me as astounding is the fact that you made mention of 50,000 reservists just 13 years ago in 2010. I remember in the early 90s, it was a, a far higher figure. We're now talking just over 3,000. Is this because there's a lack of wanting to be part of a community, um, volunteerism dying, or is it being made far more difficult by certain elements for people to perhaps become volunteers, not just necessarily in the police, but in the fire, in civil defense, etc. Because our population has, has blown up exponentially. We're close to the 70 million mark, and we will be in the next couple of years. Yet when you talk about volunteers, it seems to have dwindled, and it hasn't dwindled um, by a small percentage mark. In fact, it's the opposite. It has dwindled to the rate that there's hardly anybody left. Yeah, I don't think it's a, a lack of what people wanting to volunteer and, and join it. Um, almost once a week, twice a week, I'll have someone that will reach out and say, hey, Dave, you know, we understand that you're a police reserve, a service community. How can we get involved? How can we join in? 
I think the, so there's definitely a lot of people out there that want to get involved. If you see how many people are involved in uh, community policing forums, that, that sense of volunteerism in South Africa is very high. We're very proud. We very, we, we love our communities. We don't just sit back when there's a problem. South Africans are famous for kind of getting stuck in, rolling their sleeves up and hey, being part of a solution. I do think that the problem lies um, in, as you quite rightfully pointed out, the problem lies in the ability to actually join up. How easy is it for people to do right and kind of join a volunteer or organization or do they get the runaround? Um, I obviously, I mean, when I joined up, it was very easy. I literally walked into my uh, my station. Uh, they asked me a couple of questions. They did a, a small background check. And then I was on a probation period and they kind of double checked up with family and friends around the time. And I had to report to a sergeant who at any time, if he felt, hey, that I wasn't up to scratch, he could um, dismember me as such, you know, just, you know, take me out from the police. Um, and but. I understand now it's a lot more complicated. There's a lot more psychometric tests. There's a lot more going on. Um, I don't know exactly how the new uh, people join because uh, I haven't been a part of that system. But my understanding is, is, is that it's not as easy as what it was when I first joined. You would think at this juncture in, in our country's history, and next year is 30 years since our, our first democratic elections, and the following year, of course, will be um, 31 years since that, that, that great speech of volunteerism that was made by, by the late President Mandela. You'd expect that people would be encouraged. It also gives them a set of skills that they wouldn't learn elsewhere that they can apply in the mainstream labor force. Like you've indicated, a lot of the skills you learned on the job as a police officer, you've now got to um, employ as 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 tools when giving leadership courses, when teaching people, and for yourself, you're able to use those skills to be able to impart knowledge to others. Um, do you think there should be some or other mainstream collective by the state and the private sector to push the the, the populace to encourage them more to become volunteers and to make it that much easier? Absolutely. Um I mean, I, I was recently watching a, a program where I think it was, and I stand to correction here, uh, Cape Town Metro Police has a reservist program, and they were saying how a whole bunch of people have actually joined up, and um, and and they do have large numbers of people becoming Metro reservists. So it goes back to what you were saying. There's a lot of people that do want to get involved, and personally, we just need to make it a little bit easier for them to uh, join in. Uh, the police in South Africa, we really have some of the best in the world. It's such a contradiction of terms in a way because we we really have the best sometimes often working alongside <laughs> the not so best. Um, and we and we do have the kind of ability to kind of fix problems and uh, come up with good solutions. And one of the solutions, in my opinion, would be to make that recruiting process slightly easier. Talk to me more about the, the camps and the youth because we, we tend to have a situation in South Africa where we have a very despondent youth. We have youth that don't seem to look forward to the future because it seems if there's nothing to look forward to, um, specifically in rural areas and in informal settlements and in the old township environment. 
the kind of training you give the youth, what does that encompass and does it give them something at least to look forward to and what skills does it look towards? Main idea with Cam Solomon is that it's this idea of building character through through adventure. Um, we just want to get kids out of the kind of an ur- urban setup and get them into tents and back to basics. I love sitting around a campfire with kids that come from the big city who've never lit a fire before, actually sitting around making their own kind of poiki, the, the stars above them, they're leaning against a log, and the stories and the life expectations and that kind of come out of them. It is one of the most satisfying things for me these days just to watch kids sit and, and play cards or sit and, and play chess during that, that downtime. They're kind of the moment that they forced away from social media and they realize they actually have to <laughs> talk to someone one on one. You really get them to start making a lot better, closer, connections and that's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing camps because you do get a sense that we are kind of equipping the next generation with the necessary problem solving skills, uh, social skills and getting them to appreciate things. Um, you often hear people say, you know, well, what kind of uh, world are we leaving for our, for our kids? And I kind of counter that with saying, well, what kind of kids are we leaving for the world? You know, um, how are we upskilling some of our youth so that they can take us forward? When you work um, on shift, what is the kind of sense you get from the communities you work in? Because it must be a cross-sector in terms of the the people you work with. You must work in the more affluent areas all the way down to the working class environment and the informal settlements. If you had to take a barometer across the board, what kind of sense of... Of, of, of the future do you find amongst the youth that you work amongst? I actually find that the more affluent areas are a lot more negative about things. Um, they don't always necessarily see, see a future. And I've actually got to point out how lucky we are to have what we have. The youth from, you know, a kind of less fortunate um, area or, or more um, poorer area, I actually find that they that they just want a chance. They just they've got a passion for life. They want an opportunity to show that they've got what it takes. Um, and I personally think if we had more ways of kind of enhancing that energy, where we could just um, allow these kids to kind of show us what what they have and harness that kind of passion, we'd go a, a long way within our country and they they do sometimes feel a little bit more despondent because they can't kind of channel their energies into anything positive i mean i I just love our area we've got an organization called love notties and it's part of love love howick and they give opportunities to uh people that if you want to actually get out and work if you want to volunteer uh, we'll give you a platform to kind of join up and they do a lot of upskilling of youth that join their programs. Um, and I just love that idea that um, if you really want to make a difference, there's organizations out there that are quite happy to kind of hold your hand and take you along that um, that journey. The, the big challenge is trying to locate some of these organizations, some of the bigger cities, but in a smaller community like where, where we are, um, those communities are well known. 
When we come back, I want to talk more about that sense of volunteerism, how people can get in touch, starting, of course, at community level, something that you told us, and what we can look at from a national perspective. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. My guest today is David Allen. He wrote a book, Leadership in the Trees. You can find more, if I find more about David Allen at his website, and it's very easy to remember. It's David Allen, spelled A-L-L-E-N, dot Africa. That website again is David Allen, dot Africa. Allen, going into 2024, Allen, since I'm calling you by your surname now, it's like I'm, I'm your senior <laughs> police, so you've just joined. David, going into, into 2024, my, my message, and it's, it's been a message that I've, I've tried to, to put out there for many years is, Get involved. We're going into an election cycle. People complain bitterly about the status quo, but some of them don't understand their civic duty. And their civic duty starts with things like voting. And then it expands. It includes things like volunteerism, thinking about their fellow man. What do you think is the, the root cause of of some people not wanting to get involved and after 28 years of giving yourself and almost giving up your life, what kind of satisfaction has there been in volunteering? I think the main root cause is people just not knowing how to actually join up and some organizations that might make it very difficult to actually join. When I talk to youth, especially grade 11, grade 12s, you know, how to, because one of the body language things that we kind of prep grade 11s and grade 12s for is how do you have a decent job interview? How, when you walk in for the job interview, you know, the, the, the prospective interviewer is going to judge you in the first 30 seconds. They're going to decide, are you good at this or you're not good at this? And how do you make a good first 30 seconds impression? And then we kind of go and talk about someone's CV. Um, and a lot of, I mean, I've been in the business world. I've started up my own businesses. I've, I still run a few, but I'll kind of work, move in Chamber of Commerce uh, circles and chat with other business leaders and business people. And I've often asked them, you know, what do you look for when you hire someone? You know, what, what, what are you after? And the, the answer very often comes back is that they kind of want someone who can think for themselves and someone who can just get the job done. They you know, yes, the qualifications important, but ultimately they want someone who can think for themselves and just get the job done. And when I explain that to grade 11s, grade 12s, saying, guys, volunteer. Get, even if you go down as the waiter and waitress, go to that restaurant and say, you don't have to pay me. I just want the opportunity to even wash dishes. That shows that you, that you're not just, you know, book smart, you're actually street smart. You've got the ability to get stuck in and get your hands dirty and work. SBCA is an awesome place. They always want volunteers. They always need volunteers. There's always something. And the moment I kind of look at any CV and I've got a CV of, of, of someone who's done matric and then did four years of study, but did no other extramural activities. Didn't waiter, didn't barman, didn't waitress, didn't do any um, community work, didn't even au pair. I, I straight away going to start judging, well, how how lazy is this person? I mean, how much do they really, you know, how active are they? Are they, are they, does other people have to kind of feed them information where um, on their study part, they haven't really had to work or, or do they have the ability to get up and kind of make things happen? And then when I look at a CV that's got someone that's worked as a as a barman, bar lady, as volunteered at SBCA or volunteered at any community organization, 
I mean, number one, it, it opens the door for me to have a further question about, ah, what did you do at the SBCA? So someone can actually communicate more to me. But it, it starts to show that they weren't lazy. You know, on a Saturday morning when they had the opportunity to sleep in, they were actually up and they were out there, you know, cleaning out kennels and doing things. On a Sunday when they had the opportunity to sleep in, they were out doing things. So it starts to indicate that this person has that kind of character and would be a good person to employ. So do you think companies should have more volunteer programs in place? Um, the company I'm with, we get regular requests for volunteers, and it's something that we've skirted around because, firstly, we're in a confidential space, but secondly, we're nervous of people. We become very jaded because of the crimes we've investigated. And I think it would be great to have a volunteer program. Do you think it should form part of a CSI within organizations? Yes. I've... In some of the organizations that I've had, like one of the the businesses that I kind of ran back in the old days was an old DVD shop. Um, and I, I often had, you know, like when I say good parents who had passion for their kids, they kind of come and say, like, Dave, you know, would you mind? I just want my my child just to experience a bit of the working world. Could they work a shift in your shop? And... A lot of the times they actually got people that kind of, they offered to pay <laughs> for their own child to actually work the ships. So they didn't want me to tell them that the, that, that the child, that the parents, the money was coming from the parents, but they would actually pay me in order to transfer the money through. And, and often I would take on those students and they would work a shift. Um, and I'll just pair them up with someone else. And you could definitely see their, their sense of pride. You know, when they first arrived, for that kind of job interview or for that one or two first days of, of work. They weren't really dressed smart. They didn't have a passion for it. But as they kind of got into it and, they, and their self-confidence started to grow, you could see that the way that they uh, dressed changed, the way that they walked changed. Their self-confidence started to grow. They started to believe in themselves. They're dealing with a customer. I mean, people are difficult. People are in, by, by nature are difficult. And dealing with someone, learning how to deal with an irate person, is something that develops over time. And being in a, in that type of environment, they got to learn so many social skills. But at the same time, the moment that I was short a shift person, like on, on a weekend and one of my regular staff members couldn't make it, I, I could contact one of the, my kind of volunteers and they would step in straight away. So it kind of helped my own productivity increase. Plus, I was also exposing my business to that teenager's network of influence. And as social media started coming up, I got to learn a lot about um, how, to, how to advertise my own business to a completely different generation. So I have found having volunteers, even now when we run in camps, we often get a lot of parents that will say, hey, now can my kid kind of join up as a, as a camp counselor? And again, you know, put them to work and we'll you know, contribute towards their salaries but I just want them to kind of work in the kitchens and, and, and sweep floors and I just want them to get that work experience and again it, it's the same thing if you very quickly you kind of see how these students start, start to grow in the moment that there's a, um, a problem with one of my other permanent staff members they just fit in straight away um, and business I, I get a lot of additional kind of business through those teenagers ability to network and their social media skills i've learned a lot 
David, thank you for today. Um, I think you and I are going to be taking this chat offline and coming up with something next year on social media where we're going to chat more directly to, to companies and individuals that are in the, um, the space where they can offer a volunteer program, but more importantly, mentorship. And you have all the boxes ticked for this to become something that can be driven both from a small community all the way to a national level. So I want to thank you for your service to the community the past 28 years and your ongoing services to law enforcement on a worldwide basis in respect of the training that you give and, of course, what you're doing for skills development of the youth. It's something that we need to see more of it. It's something that when we do see it in the likes of you, we're very appreciative of it. Perfect. Chad, thank you very much for the opportunity. And yeah, I look forward to those conversations. Really enjoyed today's chat. It will be uploaded to highfm.com to the podcast. And if you want to find out more about David Allen, go to davidallen.africa. You don't get easier than that. If you want to find out more about his book, also davidallen.africa. The book is called Leadership in the Trees. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Well, like I mentioned at the outset of the show, it's really an auspicious day. It marks a 100 years since radio was first introduced in South Africa through the first experimental broadcast at the radio headquarters of Johannesburg on the 18th of December, 1923. A study a couple of years ago showed that upwards of 45 million people in South Africa still listen to radio. And think about it, it makes sense. When you're in your car on your way to work, you listen to the radio. People in rural areas have what they call a wireless, and they listen to the radio. You want to hear the news, the weather reports, and more importantly, the traffic reports? You listen to the radio. Radio is here to stay. Radio is an incredible, incredible medium, something that I've grown to love over the years. I look so forward to coming back now and again and chatting to you um, during either the morning drive or the afternoon shows, bringing you up to date with some of the, the bigger crime stories that are taking place. And I want to thank you for joining in the last 10 years. We're going to play out with uh, Queen's incredible radio-related song, Radio Gaga.